From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael, for the kind introduction and actually for inviting me for this famous lecture series. And I will briefly talk about the great invention from Joan de la Sierra, and you will a little bit later see also my enthusiasm for gyroplanes, but the main talk is really about, part of the talk is about the MyCopter project, the enabling technology for a future air transport system. So, Juan de la Sierra had constructed airplanes already as early as 1912, and after he crashed one of his constructions because he stalled the aircraft, he got fascinated by the idea of, of building something which cannot stall. So he was experimenting with what he called rotating wings, and that was the birth of the outer gyro, which generates lift at low airspeed and basically cannot stall. And then in the 20s, actually, there was really a boom of these autogyros. But then later, they really got pretty much neglected because they were pushed out of the market by, by helicopters, which have one additional advantage. They can do vertical takeoff and landing. So they can do other missions, what you cannot do. You always you know with the autogyros, you, you, you have to have a landing strip and, and take off, even though it's, it's a very short takeoff and landing distance, you cannot do it vertically. But later, in the 1990s, there was the company Autogyro in Germany and also other companies, especially also in Spain, who rethought this autogyro idea and make it available to the general public. And there is really, it was really a boom and still continuing. And you see a lot of these autogyros. But there is also one, one at least one, and this is what I want to show you, is, which can actually, has a kind of autogyro principle. And, but can also do uh, vertical takeoff and landing, and that's from Carter Aviation Technologies. And that's, they speed up the rotor up to 500 RPMs. Usually you have 200 RPMs. And so they have also a lot of energy in the, in the, in the, in the rotor system because um, they have also uh, weights and the wingtips. And you, know, you can actually take off what you cannot do, and I will show you in a second the normal takeoff of an autogyro so that you just see what all the other autogyros usually do. They need a takeoff and landing distance. So now by, and this is actually by, by changing, and they have a, really a changing pitch for the rotor blades, which you don't have on normal autogyros. And here you see an autogyro mode taking off and you have the windmill effect and you are pushed through the air, through the, the rotor in the back, 
And, and that's basically the principle of, of autogyros. So why, why are these autogyros so popular these days? First of all, they are much less expensive than, than helicopters. And they're also much easier to learn to fly, so it takes less than instruction hours and also easier than later on to, to handle these. And another issue which actually will be, and these are all important characteristics for personal aviation, and especially the safety, even so, I mean, there are different views on the safety of autogyros. I give you my, my personal experience of autogyros now, and I think they are extremely safe. <laughs> I went to Costa Rica uh, with six of my friends uh, and we flew uh, along the coast uh, for uh, 500 kilometers from the border of Nicaragua to Panama and flying behind each other in, in, a, in, in a configuration. But when I saw this uh, little uh, creek coming up here on the left, this little river, I was really tempted uh, to do it. In, uh, a low-level flight along the riverbed, and here you can see you can actually do quite nice maneuvers. It was actually great fun, and they are very stable. You see, I mean, I basically can leave the hand off of the stick. It's a stable flight. You don't really have to do very much to control the auto gyro and. Soon we will come back to the coastline and then I have to do one more steep turn to, to follow my wife, which is in, in the in, uh, in gyrocopter. And, and then we line up and fly for another in, in a couple of hours. So it is in a really, in a, I think, a very safe in a, in a thing to fly because it's constantly in auto rotation. I fly also helicopters and when you fly a a helicopter, especially if you fly the helicopters which are very small, the R-22, you have basically one or two seconds to react when you have an engine failure because the rotor speed bleeds off so quickly that the rotor will stall and you cannot recover. Here you don't have that problem. So now We are still very far from personal aviation, what you see here in this picture, which is based on an out-of-the-box study from the European Commission. They did that in 2007, looking at future air transport in up to the year 2050, looking at all different directions, and one of the directions was personal aviation. So we don't have these flying saucers yet, but the motivation actually for, for this study, and it's also, I think, my motivation, that we are wasting an enormous amount of money every year being stuck in traffic. And you all know this feeling when you are, again, stuck in traffic on the highway. What you would like to do, jump into the air, and fly away. And uh, that is my, my dream for a long, long time. And uh, another motivation here is also just to give you three motivations, but there are many more. 
and, uh, 20, more, and, uh, and, uh, 10, 20 times more fuel is really wasted and, uh, every year in the U.S. in traffic jams. That's more than the whole general aviation fleet in, in the U.S. And, uh, consumes per year. And you all know this, and especially also here in London, and, uh, in large European cities, and, uh, you spend basically more than 50 hours per year being stuck in traffic. <laughs> This is uh, the motivation, and then uh, the European Commission uh, came out with a, a call uh, to, to look into this problem. But they also explicitly uh, said uh, that designing the vehicle is only a relatively small part of overcoming the challenges. The other challenges still remain, and this has, have not been looked at. And that was uh, actually the motivation for me to, to, to jump in and, 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 uh, and write a proposal for this call. For example, the challenge is how many can fly, and, uh, who can fly, what about safety noise issues, and overall, how are these PAVs integrated in the overall transport system? And at the very end, I will show you uh, a video from uh, Switzerland where I think they show a very nice uh, scenario telling you also how that can be integrated in the overall transport system. So in, in this call, in, in, uh, the European Commission call for proposals, in, uh, they said, here are a few quotes, in, uh, innovative technologies that might facilitate the step change required for air transport. And Personal air transport has been regarded as a possible solution to the ever-increasing congestion in road traffic providing at the same time greater speed and flexibility. So that's all from the Framework 7 program transport call. In November 2007, then there was another call. The first one, we, we applied for it, and we didn't make it, but the second time we made. And I put together a team of leading universities in, in, in Europe and also research institutions and in January 2011, we could start the European project, MyCopter. And now I will tell you a few parts of the challenges we addressed. But we didn't address what you would maybe like to see is we are not building another personal air vehicle. So, the technology exists, and this has been tried many times before. And here you see a few examples. In some undergraduates from MIT founded a company, TerraFuja. And basically, it's an aircraft with foldable wings. And you can fold the wings, and then you can drive away. But you still need an airport to land on. And another project is the Paul V project. All of these projects, I'll show you in a second, need, need really a pilot license. So you have to be able to fly the flying car. And you need the infrastructure. You need a landing strip. So all these projects so far looked really at the design instead of the overall transport system. So here's another nice example, which of course fits very well into this lecture series here, based on, on an autogyro. The, the, the Netherlands company 
at some nice technology, in a foldable in a rotor system, and then you fold it away, and then you can uh, drive in a, away. But you see, I mean, you see, need a, in an empty road, and that's exactly what we don't have when we are getting stuck in traffic. So you, you cannot lift off vertically. But here's another, actually, nice project from the German company Evolo, which actually is a multi-rotor system. You have 18 rotors, 1.8 meter diameter, the overall diameter of the area, rotor area is nine meters. So it's a pretty big thing, but these are electrically driven and that was the maiden flight, unmanned yet, in, 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 in this uh, arena here, and, uh, controlled from below. Similar, I mean, they basically use the same uh, controller which you use uh, when you fly your model aircraft. And actually, the, the people who started this company were one physicist and uh, somebody who was tinkering around with, with model aircrafts, and they founded this. Uh, this company, uh, they, they made a very famous YouTube video which got viral and after, uh, I mean, it was kind of a dangerous thing. They were basically sitting on, on they built something, but I mean, very fragile. And in the middle there was a, a big ball and he was sitting on the ball and, and controlling. He did three minute flight. This, uh, this YouTube video got viral and they got a lot, immediately a lot of calls from companies and we want to be part of it. And the government said, okay, we give you money. And they started this company and then uh, only, I think a year and a half later, uh, they uh, teamed up uh, with an uh, uh, airplane manufacturer and they built this prototype. This was in 2013 in November and you know, this year they want to have the first man flight outdoors and they are optimistic to sell them in 2016. So limitations here are still the battery technology. Right now it flies 15 to 20 minutes, but we all know that the batteries will increase because there's a lot of interest also from the car industry in this battery technology development. So. Just to show you, I mean, in principle, the technology is there and can be further developed, but what are the real challenges if you want to make this into a personal air transportation system and to get away from, from traffic jams? So that's what we started to look at in the MyCopter project, and we started to look at, at four different areas. So the first area is, is automation. If you want to make the average car driver into a pilot, you, you need a lot of automation. It, it would be the transition from car to plane doesn't work that easily. So, but you can help the pilot. And our idea was also to do something what every non-instrument rated pilot does. He looks out of the cockpit and he has to do the assessment of what is a good landing space, where are obstacles, where are other aircrafts, how can I avoid them. He does that all by looking out of the cockpit. He is not remotely controlled like the commercial pilots with air traffic control and their autopilot systems. 
he has to do it himself. So we would like, you know, since we want to fly low-level flights in uncontrolled airspace, you know, we, we need you know, vision on board, and that hasn't been really very much considered in, in the in, in aerospace industry to put cameras on, on board. You know, we see it now in the car industry, we have automatic driving cars, and they have vision on board and computer vision to, to really control and, and find an, an obstacle and make it an, uh, automatic driving safe. So in principle, you know, we can do this, but what a pilot also has to do is a you know, landing place assessment that what every glider pilot does when, when he goes cross country, he's always constantly looking out, and, uh, I mean, uh, do I make it to the next place where I get lift, and, uh, or do I have to do land in the field? And he has to judge the area below him is that a suitable landing area. So I will show you in a second that we are looking into these issues. And basically, we want to rely not only on one sensor, not only on vision, but I mean, we would like to do sensor fusion for collision avoidance. Then. How do you want to pilot this? So you, you have a lot of automation, but you would like to keep the pilot in the loop. And, uh, we want to have a shared control between the human and, and the autopilot so that he's not losing situational awareness. Now, when you have the autopilot and you don't know in what mode, and there are many modes now, the autopilot in commercial airliners can be in, and if you are not really aware of it, then something happens, what happened in San Francisco with the Asiana flight. The pilots didn't really understand what the autopilot was doing. He put it in the wrong mode, and then it was too late. So the other thing what we would like to look is at the control interfaces and displays. So, I mean, you don't want to put in the, into a flying car a cockpit which looks, uh, even though these days, I mean, it looks much cleaner than the uh, 747 cockpits with lots of panels overhead and in front of you. Now you have these glass cockpits. They look uh, kind of clean, but, I mean, you, the average uh, uh, car driver would still be overloaded uh, by, by these glass cockpits. And so we, we, we are looking at something simpler. And also what most, in most control interfaces is not considered. I mean, you have either vision and then you have a, a control, a joystick, but you don't really get any feedback from your haptic channel. So I think if you are visually overloaded, there is still capacity, working capacity in your other senses. And that comes from my biology background that we can actually use other sensors and put that into the system so that we can do even under stress, in a high stress level, when one channel is not, if you're visually overloaded, you might actually have other sensors where you can get information. And last not least, I mean, this exploring the socio-technology environment, the acceptance by the society. I mean, the problems, what I hear immediately when I talk about it, noise, yeah, what about safety? I mean, I don't want to have these buzzing things above my head. Is it really fuel efficient and, and so on? So, and then how to integrate it into, into the current transport system. This is 
done by a technology assessment group from Karlsruhe University. They look at uh, technology and, uh, and uh, did studies, and I will talk about that uh, at the end. So let's look first at novel approaches to automation. So what we want to develop is robust and uh, novel algorithms for vision-based control. I mean, that's what the human non-instrument rated pilot uses. It's his vision. And uh, how, uh, so we want to emulate, emulate uh, VFR pilots for obstacle avoidance, surface to land on, and so on. And I show you one, one thing. And of course, we don't have the vehicles yet, and we didn't uh, want to build it. So we took something, I mean, we got good money from the U in, in European Union, but in, uh, nevertheless, when you do university research in, uh, with, with many students, you have to look at, in, uh, at a little bit less expensive vehicles. So we do that with in, uh, quadrotors or hexacopters. In, uh, and here you see the work in, uh, from the ETH in, uh, and so, this video presents our latest results towards fully autonomous flights with a small helicopter. With the monocular camera at the only exteroceptive sensor, visual and inertial measurements are fused by an extended Kalman filter formulation. The first experiment shows a long vision based flight. The helicopter is controlled manually to initialize the PTAM based visual SLAM. After SLAM initialization, the system switches to autonomous vision control for waypoint following. As the helicopter explores the environment, a local map is gradually built. To ensure constant computational complexity, only the last 20 keyframes are maintained. This experiment was limited by battery life to two and a half loops around the area, yielding a final position drift of 0.4% without any global optimization. Large lighting changes can cause texture loss, but thanks to our robust tracker and sensor fusion, our SLAM system can still track the map given these challenging images. The helicopter is shown to fly up to an altitude of 70 meters, while the tracker operates continuously and successfully despite the huge scale change. This experiment highlights the strength of our monocular approach, which is independent of scene depth. A similar platform with a stereo camera would quickly reduce to monocular sensing at an altitude of more than 15 meters above ground. Descending from an altitude of 70 meters, landing is still performed with vision in the loop while velocity commands are given by a joystick. Our visual inertial SLAM framework for small helicopters provides a solid basis for further research on high-level algorithms towards increasing the overall autonomy. So basically we use these in, in, in small platforms to develop computer vision algorithms which are, are fast, but of course they are also limited by what you can put on compute power. So if you would have a larger system, actually you could make that in, in, in even, even better because you, you could put a little bit faster in, in machines on board. And that was really the challenge in, in, to, in, to do this with these quadcopters, but the algorithms are very robust. You saw the lighting change, you had very bad video feed, but the, the, the tracking of features worked very well. And here you can see you know, when, you, when you do something in the field outdoors you know, under different lighting conditions and different seasons, I mean, you have to deal with a lot of challenges. So 
Here is basically what, what the computer vision algorithm does. And, uh, what humans, if they would sit in this little vehicle, they would immediately recognize uh, a tree and also some containers which are hardly visible, but they would recognize that they should not land there. So what this computer vision algorithm is, is building really an occupancy grid of the environment and label these uh, uh, as uh, dangerous or landable areas. And that can be done more or less in real time. But also, I mean, we showed you that you have to track features. So, I mean, when you have vision, you have to see something. But then sometimes, if you and helicopter pilots have the same problem, if they fly over snow area and there are no features to track, then you have a hard time to judge the distance and, and land there. So this algorithm actually avoids featureless areas. So if there's, for example, a lake, then it goes along the shoreline automatically and always tracks features and avoids areas where it cannot see. Or the other thing what you can do is you, you gain height until in your field of view there is another feature which you can see and then you can use this for, for navigation. Another problem, as what I mentioned already, is especially if you have such a vehicle and something goes wrong, you want to land, like what the glider pilots, but also in principle every VFR pilot should do. I mean, the engines are very reliable, but you should always be aware of when something goes wrong, where can you land. And so our colleagues at EPFL, also in the computer vision lab, looked at algorithms to classify images very fast into areas which were suitable for landing and not suitable for landing. And they tested out different algorithms. I don't have the time to go into this, but you see now here the areas which are labeled in red, which might be suitable for landing or not, this is changing and, and all the time, but in the end it will stabilize at something if you take the full approach and also color selection, because initially the lake was also labeled as a flat area you can land on. Of course, you don't want to land on the Lake of Geneva, but if you do a little bit of addition, color segmentation, then it's very, very simple to do. Or if you have multispectral cameras, you can even, from multispectral cameras, classify the different kinds of cornfields just by, by computer vision with not only the, our normal vision, but if you have multispectral cameras. So you can enhance even human vision with sensors which we, which we don't have. And so that makes actually also then computer vision much easier. Another issue is, of course, collision avoidance. And you all know if you see on your windshield an aircraft in the far distance, and all what it does, it stays at the same spot on your windshield, but it gets bigger, you are in big trouble, because then you are really on collision course. So now, just to, to test some different algorithms, we had here this fun video and running this, this algorithm on this fun video. I mean, that's a relatively simple problem, so it classifies here this, 
an object as something which you, know, you better get away from. And, but we did that also <clears throat> with flying cameras. So we put cameras on these quadcopters. We have cameras on, on these flying saucers, so to speak, and detect other. They are remotely controlled by one pilot here, and you see the green area classifies nicely this object as something which you don't want to collide with. But then, for all fairness, it classifies also something in the background as something which, I mean, humans wouldn't do. So, I mean, computer vision is not perfect yet here. But, and the classification against the ceiling is also relatively simple, but if you do it about in front of a background and your camera is moving, you have a lot of motion in your image and to classify the moving object from the motion of the overall motion of the, the background is, is an interesting uh, computer vision problem, and people are working on this. So I think I mean, we, are, we are getting better and better in this area. <clears throat> Another thing is uh, if we take all these cars from the road, or even only a small percentage, which could, in principle, fly above the highways, you would like not to, I mean, the density is increasing, even though you have the third dimension available and you can stagger these, these cars and you are not squeezed into a narrow highway, you still have lots of flying vehicles around you. But if you take inspiration from biology, I mean, birds do that all the time. They fly in swarms, and I guess you have never seen a bird falling out of a swarm because they collided with another bird. So with their vision, they can do it. Why shouldn't we be able to do that too? So our colleagues at EPFL, they had these little gliders, motorized gliders, and actually tested some of the, the swarm technology with these kind of gliders. So, but most of the stuff is really done in simulation. So here you have now hundreds of flying vehicles going through each other. And I mean, each in simulation is aware, not of all the others, but in a certain neighborhood aware of the, the velocity and the distance, and from this, you can actually develop strategies to, to move through a cloud. And actually, we take inspiration of something what we see all the time when, when we have many people, and each person has a different kind of goal in going around, and, and we try to avoid each other. Sometimes we bump into each other. But most of the time, we, we do this, and we take some inspiration from this. And of course, I mean, we have not the ability to, to have so many flying in the air, but we built some low cost, and that was the colleagues from EPFL with printing technology. We built our own quad rotors, and we have 10 of them, and we will demonstrate the, the swarm behavior on our demonstration day in November, which is our project day, and the project is coming to the end, and there we will present some of the technology. I just want to give you one example in a, in a, in a worst case scenario. If you have 50 vehicles, and of course this we also had to do in simulation because we don't have 50 vehicles, 
if we put them on a circle and the goal of each vehicle is to go to the other side and if they all start at the same time, you can imagine what happens then in the center. So we, we do that in the simulation with the, the, the swarm and collision avoidance and the behavior which we build into our simulated vehicles. And you see, so soon the density is increasing. We are following one lead vehicle here with our flying camera, so to speak. And so the density becomes quite high when they all get into the area of the center, but they all pass each other. There are no collisions. So I mean, that just tells you that in principle you, you can solve this problem. In reality, I, I admit, I mean, we haven't done it yet, but I mean, we, I think we, this is about enabling technologies to, to tell you what, what kind of things you can and should consider. For, for future uh, air transport systems. The other uh, thing is uh, piloting PAVs. So I said already, I mean, you have to augment these because uh, a helicopter is very difficult to fly and uh, requires lots of training. And we cannot expect that from the average car driver. But it's not clear what, what kind of skills do we need. And so our colleagues actually from Liverpool looked into the handling qualities of flying of PAVs and what PAV should have in order to make it controllable for a non-pilot. So I mean, they, they developed different algorithms for the augmentation of these PAVs, tested them on their simulator and went from basic helicopter control, rate control with cyclic, through just attitude control with pitch and roll, and translation control, forward and lateral velocity, and in the end, even to car-like steering. And I show you just one video from, from the simulator in Liverpool. Here we have a smooth transition from a takeoff to forward flight. I mean, there are different modes, and the, the tricky part is to go and really to do the, the transition right. And, and now we can just by a, a, a little shift of the cyclic do a coordinated turn. And when you are in, in, in cruise flight, I mean, you can take out and and, uh, your, your and, uh, cell phone and text a message. You leave and let the, the cyclic stick alone, something which you should never do with a helicopter. And, uh, if you don't want to get into trouble, you have to control a helicopter all the time. And uh, so this is something which uh, uh, we uh, considered. What kind of rate control do we need really in order to, to make it flyable? Another issue is uh, flight uh, controls, I mean, the human-machine interface, and that's actually what we are interested in, and also uh, the current flight controls. I mean, for a helicopter, you have a cyclic stick, you have a collective, you have the pedals, and, uh, and you have to coordinate your movements very precisely. That takes a lot of time to learn. And, and then, again, also, I mean, you don't really get feedback you know, about the state you know, of the helicopter from your controls. You know, if you have a, a hydraulic in there, I mean, you can control the cyclic stick with two fingers, but you have no idea, you have no 
rudder forces, like in the old days in airplanes, you could feel the controlled surfaces. Also these days you don't have that in commercial airlines anymore. But I think it's important. Last not least, if you evaluate these different handling qualities, if you develop these, and that's our goal, to, to, to test these. Also, you would like to, to measure the workload of, of the, the human subjects. And so far, I mean, there are not really very good objective measures of pilot workload. I mean, you have these questionnaires. And so we are looking also at, at these kind of questions. So the first thing what we wanted to build, and I mean, that's not really something new, but I mean, it's important to consider is if, if you have a flying car and you have highways in the sky, I mean, you still want the, the people in, in the swarm or also not in the swarm. I mean, you fly certain directions and not go everywhere. So, I mean, you can build highways in the sky to avoid noise-sensitive areas so that they are not buzzing around everywhere. And so, but then you, you need a display system and we were considering different highway in the sky in a displays. I mean, this is, again, way too complicated. This is more a traditional way where you have also other information. You should make it as simple as possible because you don't want to visually overload the person with too much information. And the other thing what we started to do is we want to give them feedback not only via the visual modality, via the visual channel, but also by the haptic channel. So we have this haptic the force feedback joystick and you can get implement some spring-like guidance forces and you can make that difference or you can even avoid that they are going and leave the road but in principle you would like to keep the pilot in the loop to tell them yes I'm in control but you are guiding him and helping him to stay on the road. So that's actually, I think, a very important concept that you have really shared control with, between the autopilot and the human. The pilot has to remain in control, but he gets guidance forces to keep on the right path. And there's a lot going on also in our lab now on this haptic shared control. I said that we want to, for the development of novel interfaces, we want to measure the workload. So we have also a lab where we have EEG. So we do record the activity in the brain with electrodes. So they have their cables. We are not expecting that to put that on the on the pilots in 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 the PAV. This is only for the development phase, so that we get some objective measures from physiological parameters, so EEG, heart rate, variability, skin conductance when you're starting to sweat, and all these things to, to get a workload measure which goes beyond, which usually is used in questionnaires like the NASA and TLX, some of you might know. So, last not least, I mean, we, we also looked at if you want to make the car driver a PAV driver, I mean, we are driving cars for 100 years with a steering wheel. 
why not uh, changing everything? Why not really steer the PAV also with a, steer, a steering wheel and use uh, the, the pedal uh, like in an automatic car? You have uh, the accelerator and you have the brake. And uh, so you can control the speed or the acceleration or you can brake and put uh, the system into a hover mode. And then you can uh, do precision maneuvering, maybe with these uh, uh, ring of buttons, and do the lateral control just by pressing a button and, and, and do uh, a sidestep maneuver or go forward, backward with fine control. Or if you do want to do a turn and you are in hover mode, then you just turn the steering wheel and you turn on the spot, while when you are in forward flight, you use the steering wheel for a coordinated turn. So you might actually want to have the collective, but then, I mean, you are not controlling the power, but you are controlling the flight path angle with the collective. But you don't have to do this. Also in forward flight, you can take the push buttons and change just your flight path angle or give basically a climb rate. So actually that this is possible to do. We will show you in, in, uh, if you want to come. By the way, I have invitations on the desk upstairs, so you can grab it and you can also go to the web of our MyCopter project and, and register still for this event, 20th of November, where we will show some of the technology. And one of the technologies is what we are going to show is, is really the steering wheel and the flying helicopter simulator from the DLR, and that you can fly a helicopter with a steering wheel. So, I said already, I mean, one of the big challenges is it's really the acceptance of the society for this novel kind of transport system. And so we do that with our partner from KIT, Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, and they did evaluation and focus groups where we looked in different cities in, in, in Germany what and asked questions and actually we let them fly on a, on, a, on a simulator to give them the feeling this is the future and here you can try it out in a simulator and then you, you tell us about what you like and what you don't like about it. And actually, we looked mainly at the, at the scenario of, of commuting and, and said, I mean, what, what I said in the beginning, I mean, you, you really, when you got stuck in traffic, I mean, you would like to go into the air and fly away from the traffic jam. And so we looked also at, and did an evaluation how much time you, you spend, and these were done by our Karlsruhe partners. So, I mean, in London, when you go a distance, I mean, this of, of 30 minutes, you spend in, in light traffic, eight minutes in traffic jam, and in the worst case here, in 13 or 15 minutes in tra traffic jam. So, I mean, this was done for a lot of different cities, and the, the worst city in the upper right corner, sorry if you can't read it, but the upper right corner is Istanbul. 
So, and, and London is just in the middle, so it's not so bad here. It can get much worse. So, so we did these focus group interviews and in Liverpool, because they have a nice simulator, in Tübingen we have a nice simulator, in Zurich we, we didn't use the simulator, but we showed them videos. And, and then we really did questionnaires and, and, and also free and open and, and, and they could write down what they think about this concept. And yeah, I can read some of the answers. So for, I mean, we had this different issue starting with safety. I mean, some people said, I mean, I would like to have an airbag around the whole thing so that when I crash, no, I, I'm, I'm safe. I mean, that's an interesting technology. I've seen actually at, in, in, I think in Montreal at, at the AHS, there are some concepts of having, I mean, to make you know, the heart, the crash landing of a helicopter with an airbag below a little bit safer. But uh, yeah, so that, that, I mean, just ideas what they got, the environmental issues, that's what we heard a lot. And the thousands of these buzzing around and have their emissions are noisy, produce shade actually. I mean, they thought, I mean, I, I, have, I want to see the sky and I don't want to have, it's bad enough to see all the cars, but I mean, I want to see the sky and not have something in the sky. So that's, of course, I can understand. What was interesting actually also in, in, in Zurich, Zurich has a really excellent public transportation system uh, with, with buses and trolleys, and, uh, but even at rush hours, this is not enough. And uh, so, I mean, people complain a lot uh, during rush hours that they are uh, getting nowhere. So they said, yeah, during rush hours, that would be a very nice concept, but only, please, only during rush hours, not all day and also not on weekends. I want to have privacy. I don't want to people fly by my balcony and sneak in what I'm doing there. So this is interesting. I mean, uh, and, and that has to be taken into consideration if you really build a transport system. Uh, you have to take these comments from the people seriously and, and really work with it and, and design it. So there are lot, lots of questions. I mean, I, I don't want to, to go on too long. So if it's all automatic and an accident ha happens, what, uh, whose fault is it? I think luckily, I mean, the car industry uh, will uh, solve this problem for us because with the Google cars, I mean, this is already an issue. And uh, so a lot of uh, legal issues have to be solved and I think they will be solved when we get more and more automation into the cars. So I'm not so much worried about, and I think in, in a future project, we, we, we don't really have to do this. I think this will be solved hopefully by somebody else. I'm also not really very keen on looking at legal issues. And, so, and then, I mean, these things, of course, comes up. I mean, how much does it cost? I mean, can I afford it? So maybe, and that's also, I mean, cars are also expensive. and. I mean, 95% of the time, the car is either at your home or at, the, at your company in the parking lot. So it's actually not a very good use of, of the investment. 
And so now people are also thinking about shared car models, and this might be also a good idea for personal air vehicles. Or other things which I will show you at the very end, but one more thing is, is that we want to demonstrate some of these concepts from the different partners, and we all convene on our project day in Braunschweig and, and show you some of the uh, technologies there. And uh, yeah, I mean, for example, the swarm technology, I said already in the beginning, uh, we built our own uh, quad uh, rotor system, uh, very lightweight. Of course, then we don't have much processing power on it and, uh, and, and we tested out different sensors, but we will have these things flying around and uh, avoiding each other. We will do some of the evaluation on the wonderful flying helicopter simulator, which the DLR has. There's only two kinds of, I think one is in, in Canada and, and one is in, in, in Germany, which is a full fly-by-wire, fly-by-light experimental helicopter where you can actually change the handling qualities because, I mean, you basically have a flight computer in between and you can put whatever control you want in it as long as it is within the envelope of the abilities of this EC-135. You can emulate different kind of helicopters this way. And with this, we can also validate different human-machine interface concepts and also the novel display systems. And, and some of them is already implemented. They, they have this tunnel-in-the-sky display and they also have a, a haptic force feedback system. And what you can see here, it is really implemented in the, in the steering wheel in the FHS. That's the original picture. So that's what we, what we try to do and, and, and show that it's possible. So where do we go from here? I should come to an end, so I don't want to go into all the different issues. There are still many, many problems to be solved, but one thing is also a business model for PEVs, and there was a very interesting business model just presented at the Swiss Energy and Climate Summit as a keynote speaker from the Evolo company, and the Swiss, I mean, put quite some money into a very nice video, which shows, I think, a very nice way also of integrating this concept of personal air vehicles into and, and avoiding the traffic jams and integrating that with other public transport systems. And I would, at the end, like to show you this video. and streets are completely overburdened at peak traveling times. In 2013, drivers in Switzerland were recorded as having spent over 33 million hours in traffic. 
When translated into economic figures, this unproductive time results in costs of around 1.62 billion Swiss francs. The expansion of our motorways is gobbling up our precious cultivated land and also costs a great deal of money. On average, 60 million Swiss francs for each kilometer of federal road. The cost of building a third lane on the route between Bern and Zurich has been estimated at 10 billion Swiss francs. It's time for a new visionary mobility system, a system that ensures that people can be transported between the 10 largest cities in Switzerland efficiently and quickly while conserving resources. A new flight corridor will be created 50 meters above the existing motorways, stretching from Geneva to St. Gallen and from Lucerne to Basel. High-tech multi-copters that carry 12 passengers will run safely and without causing any traffic between the major cities or their hubs at short, regular intervals. The multi-copters are equipped with the latest navigation, collision protection and safety technology. With flights setting off every few minutes and a transport capacity of 1,500 persons per hour, up to 120 multi-copters will run in both directions between Bern and Zurich during rush hours. No cultivated land would have to be used, and there would be no need to spend any money developing the motorways. The new system is efficient. Next-generation high-capacity batteries will supply power to the extremely efficient electric motors that drive the rotor blades. The power stored in these batteries is generated from renewable energy sources. The multi-copters can set off as and when they are required, but only when all 12 seats in the vehicle are occupied. Once you have landed, you can then use local public transport to travel quickly from the respective hub to your final destination. Yeah, so I'm coming to the end with this visionary idea of a new transport system which I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, my wife is from uh, Lausanne, so I'm, fly, I'm driving this, you know, this road very often and I got st get stuck all the time, so I really hope you know, that I can uh, see that happening one day. And you know, I hope our you know, European project was you know, looking into the different technologies, which were actually also vision here in this video will help to go towards this goal. And last but not least, if you want to see it, come to our project day in November. Thank you very much for your attention. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.